When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well, of course, as insight analysis and all the big talking points in the game. Now, I usually call Mr. Duncan Castles our transfer guru, but today he's the transfer soothsayer. For those of you who listened to last Friday's pod, you'll have heard him say, please bring an end to the Gareth Bale transfer saga. And what does Zidane Zidane do? He listens to the podcast and tells the world that Bale must leave now because he is just as sick of it as Duncan. Duncan, how does it feel to be a prophet of football? Um, I wish I was a prophet of football. Well, prophet with an S then, let's let's just say that. (laughs) (laughs) One place to start today, Duncan, as always, has news and he has news on probably one of the biggest transfers of this summer. A twist in the tail of the Brazil international Neymar and his long-anticipated move from Paris Saint-Germain. Yes, just an update on where Barcelona are with Neymar. They're um, clear from uh, the conversations they've had with Neymar's camp that Neymar wants to come there. Um, obviously, this is a move that's been um, activated, in a, in a sense, by Lionel Messi um, and his desire to bring um, the band back together at, at Barcelona um, and convincing Neymar that uh, his escape from Paris Saint-Germain should be back to um, the uh, Liga Champions. Um, however, the complication is that um, Paris Saint-Germain want to maximise the revenue on the deal. And obviously, if you want to maximise your revenue, you try and bring in as many suitors as possible. Um, so having the deal restricted purely to Barcelona is complicated for them. As we told you, um, Barcelona proposal to um, uh, Paris Saint-Germain was, we are not going to give you the money back you paid um, us two years ago for Neymar. Um, we can take it to a maximum of 70 um, or 80 million euros of cash and we will offer you um, a large range of players to choose from to include in the deal, including um, Philippe Coutinho, Manda Belli, Samuel Titi and others. Um, if that's uh, acceptable to you, let's negotiate. If not, um, have a good season. Um, Paris um, are ready to sell um, because of the problems they've had with Neymar and the, from a sporting perspective, they see it as a sensible move to to shift uh, the player on if he's not going to uh, change his behaviour and not going to deliver in the, in the fashion they want at, at the team. Um, they are offering the player elsewhere um, to Real Madrid and to Manchester United and essentially to any club um, where they feel there is the scope to raise more money than they can get from the Barcelona deal. Barcelona's response to that has been to say to Neymar and his camp, if you want to come here, do not talk to other parties, do not engage with, do not look at the prospect of deals elsewhere. We do not want a bidding war here. 
um, if it turns into a bidding war, it's going to be very, very hard for us to complete the deal. It'll cost us more money. We won't be able to afford your wages. Um, you will not, uh, in, in most certainty, end up coming to Barcelona, which is where you want to come. Um, and you might end up being shifted to another club where you don't want to be because that suits Paris better. Um, they feel there's a further complication here in that uh, they do not trust um, Neymar's father, um, Nepai, as he's known in Brazil, um, Nepam, as he's known um, to some people in the football industry for his, uh, his ability to burn um, clubs and deals. And um, cash as well. And, and their cash, yes. Um, and they feel that uh, the father um, is encouraging these other clubs um, to come into the deal uh, in the prospect that there might be more money on the table in terms of contract, commission, etc. Uh, if Neymar has moved elsewhere. So they feel there's a, there's a bit of division and a weak point with the father. I tried to um, convince Neymar um, to prevent that from happening to facilitate their negotiations with Paris Saint-Germain and to ensure um, they get the deal completed on reasonable financial terms, which allow them um, to spend not too much money in cash, the transfer fee, uh, and shift out at least one of the highly paid players they have in their squad that they want to get out of that squad to make room for Neymar's salary when he comes to Barcelona. Um, so you can see the complexities of the situation um, and uh, I think uh, still quite a lot of work to be done um, in, in a number of ways to see if that deal can get it, get over the line. You see things like um, Barcelona offering a large range of players, a selection of players. Somehow I got this image, Duncan, of like all these like guys like Coutinho and uh, you know, got a conveyor belt going in front of Paris Saint-Germain <laughs> and they get the chance just to just point to the ones they want, you know. Um, what chance though, Duncan, because we know that Florentino Perez has had a long, long yeah. interest in Neymar going back to before he joined Barcelona. Clearly, uh, what we referenced up the top of the, uh, the pod about Gareth Bale's future, would there be a possibility, do you believe, of Madrid entering into some kind of, I don't know, bidding war, which would include Gareth Bale as part of their package to PSG? We, t- we told you earlier in the podcast that, that that interest from Florentino Perez and Neymar is, is long-standing. Um, however, they are they have been very conscious in this window that they do not want to be seen to get into a bidding war with Barcelona and lose. Um, he lost Neymar to Barcelona when he left Santos. Um, he has made it clear that he wanted Neymar to come back and spoken um, on, in public and, and try to try to entice Neymar into uh, when he does leave Paris Saint-Germain going to Real Madrid. So everyone knows Florentino's Perez's interest there. What would be embarrassing for him would be to be seen to go head-to-head with Barcelona this summer when Qatar um, are open to sale and, and then... Uh, have Qatar make that sale eventually to Barcelona and and be perceived as having lost for a second um, substantial time in a head-to-head war with his greatest rivals to secure a player that everyone knows he he really wanted. So I I think that's another complication there. I don't think Zinedine Zidane is particularly um, keen on Neymar. 
Um, he has Eden Hazard, who, um, who plays in the same position. Um, he wants Paul Pogba, who plays down the left side as well. Um, if you certainly, if you give Zidane the option of, we're going to spend a, a very substantial transfer fee on a new player coming in um, and very high wages, uh, would you like Neymar or would you like Paul Pogba? Um, Zidane is going to choose Pogba every time. Um, there is tension between uh, Zidane and Florentino Perez, um, which we've described through this summer. So it's not impossible um, that Perez would, would go down that line. And obviously, um, Gareth Bale is a, is a huge problem um, to Madrid in that they too need to raise revenue uh, in the summer. They've already spent substantial amounts of new players and they need to re- raise revenue um, to cover those transfer fees. But also they need to make room on their wedge bill. And the number one player that they are trying to get out is Gareth Bale. Um, and obviously, if Paris Saint-Germain um, signalled to Madrid that they would take Gareth Bale and Paris Saint-Germain could convince Gareth Bale and his, and his representatives that that was a good move for him, Madrid are not going to um, uh, turn that deal down. Obviously, though, they would prefer it to be a cash deal. Um, and if they can't get a cash deal, then to get him off uh, their books um, without having to pay any of his salary. And, and Paris Saint-Germain are, are attractive in the sense that they're one of the few um, European clubs that you could see being able to afford that £21 million, um, net uh, salary that, uh, that Bale is on. So, yes, you can understand why there would be discussions around that. Um, and uh, it is a priority uh, for Madrid to get Bale out. But as I say... Um, a swap deal, um, I think, is is more complicated for uh, a number of reasons. One of which, of course, is can you convince Neymar to do that if his preference is to be in Barcelona? Just a little bit of additional information on Neymar is that his uh, his mother and uh, his sister have already uh, started the process of looking for houses in Barcelona um, because uh, in the in the in preparation and in the expectation that they'll get that move through um, to the club that Neymar wants to go to. Interestingly, Duncan, this morning's edition of Marca, the Spanish uh, Sports Daily, uh, was a headline, Bail to Go, then a subheading of It's Going to Be an Ugly Divorce. Um, that's, <laughs> that's certainly, that certainly feels like an ugly divorce, Duncan, because, it's you know, the way Bail has been sort of effectively sidelined, exiled at Real Madrid uh, towards the end of last season by Zidane. It was quite embarrassing for him, I think. Um, but, you know, he's, he and his representatives have been monolithic in their um, absolute statement of he will go nowhere, he's going to see his contract out, etc., etc. And then what Zidane said uh, on Saturday that, you know, it's going to be 24 hours, 48 hours, but this is now the best thing. It's becoming slightly humiliating now for Gareth Bale um, just to the degree to which they're willing <coughs> to um, publicly denounce him in order to get him out. Now, Paris Saint-Germain, I think you're correct, would be a, a, quite a, a, an attractive option for Bale. I mean, as long as he included um, a membership for the uh, Ryder Cup course uh, just outside Paris, uh, I'm sure that would be very attractive. And um, But for Gareth Bale, the player, it just feels like, I don't know, I was looking at his stats this morning and... Uh, the amount of games he's missed has, has been, you know, again, quite startling. I think he's averaging around 30 games of his se- in his seasons there. 
when you think about Real Madrid, they play probably around 50, average about 54, 55 games a season. That's a really poor average, despite his average for scoring goals. And of course, he's got the gift of scoring the, the significant and spectacular goals in two Champions League finals and the Copa del Rey as well, um, final as well. So yeah, it's odd that he's been treated this way, but at the same time, you've got to wonder what exactly is going on behind the scenes to cause such an ugly divorce, as Marca called it. Look, Gareth Bale's a supremely talented footballer and um, you know there was a point in his career where he was being marketed by the people around him as the successor to Cristiano Ronaldo uh, before he moved to Real Madrid. And, and I think that helped get his move to Madrid. But it's clear he's never going to be the successor to Cristiano Ronaldo um, because... Uh, he doesn't deliver consistently on the pitch. I'm looking at his numbers here for Real Madrid. The most games he's played in his six seasons um, in La Liga is 31. Um, That's the the, the most he's managed for Madrid. He's been as low as 19 in a season, which wasn't last season when he was out of favour with Zidane. It was 2016-17. In total, 78 goals, 155 Liga appearances over um, six years. So, you know, that's that's well off the maximum number of appearances you'd expect to get from, if you look at Messi and Ronaldo, um, they play churn out season after season after season, playing virtually every game, um, quite often playing through injuries. Um, Bale, usually, if you look at his injury records, he's got... Um, a, a number of injuries, separate injuries each season, repeated calf problems, repeated ankle problems, repeat, repeated adductor problems. Um, he's paid on a level with what Messi and Ronaldo were at before they, they moved to their more recent contracts. So he got his financial level um, to that of top player in the game. Um, he was at a club uh, which wanted him to become the successor to Ronaldo. That was the plan. He never achieved it. Ronaldo left. Um, he had, last season, he scores just eight goals in La Liga, 14 goals total. So I think there comes a point for a club where you say, we, we have this much invested in this player and we're getting, at best, two-thirds of a campaign out of him um, each year. Uh, and uh, we can't afford to spend that much on a player who we can't rely on. If you're if you're there to lead the team, if you're there to be the best player in the squad, you need to be on the pitch all the time. Um, so yes, there's been this campaign uh, to shift Bale out, and it's been done in a very uh, traditional Madrid way, which is to get the media. Um, to uh, suggest that the player's not doing as well as he should be doing, which probably isn't that hard in these circumstances because there's plenty of ammunition from there, and, uh, and, and offer the player elsewhere. But if the player refuses to move, if his representatives refuse to have him move out, and if the player says, uh, I have this contract for three more years and I expect to be paid all of that money, um, then it becomes very difficult. And it, it's, it's quite unusual, I think, for a player of his status and his ability to threaten um, not to move. 
and say, I, 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 if you don't want to, if you don't want me in the team, um, I will just sit here and take my money for the next three years and you can pay me because you, uh, you signed the contract to pay me that money for, for three years. He's absolutely legally entitled to do that. He's absolutely entitled to be angered by the way he's been treated by Madrid. Obviously, any footballer who hears um, the coach say uh, you, uh, he is surplus to requirements, I've made that clear and I hope he leaves, is going to be upset by that. Um, but it, it's also quite unusual that a player with, who has the, the capacity to do what he can do on the sporting perspective, who is such a good footballer, is, um, is happy to take that route. Generally, if you, if you place a, a player with that capacity in that position, he'll come to a compromise and say, OK, I accept. Uh, I'm not wanted here, that it's not working. Um, where's my next club? And I'll, I'll show you when I get to my next club how good I am. So you don't get this, this um, scenario very often at this level of football. And I, and I think that's why it's become... Um, so difficult for Madrid to resolve. And, and also, I think Madrid have put themselves in a slightly difficult position because they've, they've waged this campaign against Bale and they've emphasised that they're not happy with the way he plays and they've emphasised that the injury record and the lack of focus and that, you know, that we joke about the, the, the preference for playing golf, but it is actually a factor at Madrid that the, there are people there who think he's more interested in playing golf than, they, than he is in, in football. So Madrid have allowed all this to come out, which makes it harder to move the player because any club that wants to take him are saying, well, we can see these problems. You've made these problems clear. Why should we invest so much money uh, in in a player who doesn't, from your perspective, doesn't give a value for the wages you're paying him? So let's just um, talk about the mechanics um, of Bale's ugly divorce. Uh, this won't be a normal uh, way of selling a player um, from the Madrid end because, generally speaking, um, when players leave without asking for a transfer, they're entitled to a percentage of the contract they have left. Usually that uh, percentage is between 50 and 70%. You don't, it's not normal to get 100% of your contract paid up. However, I've heard from someone close to the bail camp that they feel the way he's been treated, the way that it's been made so public, and indeed Zidane's statement, I hope he leaves, is tantamount to constructive dismissal in the normal working world. And so constructive dismissal would be a legal factor if it came to that. I think the only way Madrid are going to get out of this is by footing that bill and looking at 60 million euros just to get a player out. So whatever fee they do get from, or indeed if they get any fee for him, then it's going to be fairly you know, smaller once you take into account what the payoff's going to be, Duncan. It's an expensive process, and that's why I think you, you see these... Um these connections with, with China. I mean, that would be a good solution from Madrid's per perspective if they can get a Chinese club um, or a Middle Eastern club to, to buy bail um, or to take him without transfer fee and give him such a high salary that he accepts to leave um, with minimal cost to themselves. Again, the problem is the player. Um, you've got to convince the player who... who um, has a, a reputation for being stubborn um, and, uh, and, and I think will be extremely unhappy with, with this messy divorce. You've got to get him, convince him that uh, moving to, for example, China or perhaps to America 
um, and signalling the end of that of that European career um, is uh, appropriate for him, and and he's prepared to take the money to do that. Well, that's one situation, as well as Neymar one, which we'll definitely be developing over the next few days and up, of course, until the transfer window closes. 17 days, are, I think, left here in the UK. Um, obviously, that's extended longer in Europe. Um, now, one player we've talked about a lot this summer, Duncan, Nicola Pepe, uh, seems to have, well, he's definitely got a lot of interest from English clubs, that's for sure. But he has been available since the beginning of the window. You know, that It's been made clear that the club will sell. And yet still no one's bitten, but you believe that there's a, a new um, offer from a different club, is that correct? Yeah, Lille are um, a lot more confident uh, that they'll, they'll achieve the €80 million Euro asking price they've been looking for, um, for Pepe. Um, he's just finished um, playing the African Nations Cup. I think that, that has been a factor in the, in the delay here in that... Um, it would would have been harder to to give him a medical um, during Nations Cup. You can do that, of course, but um, uh, easier to wait until the until the tournament's finished before um, before putting offers in place and uh, and completing deals. Um, Leal are saying that they have uh, uh, significant um, proposals and interest from uh, La Liga. Um, Serie A, which I believe um, Napoli are one of the, the clubs um, with uh, an interest in Pepe there um, and England um, Arsenal uh, and Everton have inquired um, Manchester United I told you um, back in May had made their um, first inquiry direct to the club about Pepe to ask um what his uh, salary would be and what kind of money um, Leo would want for the player. They have advanced that interest in the last week and been involved in, in further discussions with Leo over that transfer. Um, it would make a lot of sense for Manchester United and we see the way that um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer is setting his team up for the season and it's very much um, focused on pace in, in attack Um Pepe can play anywhere across that forward line. He's left-footed. Um, they don't have a, um, a left-footed uh, forward in their squad, uh, in their senior squad at present. He plays uh, for Leo predominantly off the right wing, although he can play central too. Um, that's a position Manchester United haven't had a, a proper fit in uh, for quite some time. And they'd be got, they went into this window looking uh, to improve uh, in the right wing so you can see why they're interested in the player um, the question will be can they convince the player to come if um, Leo get uh, an offer at their asking price from more than one club um, and some of the other clubs are able to offer Champions League football um, Liverpool retain um, an interest in Pepe, they have not gone to Leo as yet um, to discuss terms. It, all of their work has been done with the, on, on the player's side with the agent. But um, I think Leo's uh, thinking here is once uh, one big bid comes in, then they will see the, the strength of the other suitors. And they clearly would like to have um, a bidding war between uh, strong clubs 
uh, financially strong clubs for the player because that will maximise the revenue for them and um, and they want to have that revenue to spend on players they've targeted uh, to improve their squad for their, their Champions League campaign um, coming up this season. Manchester United, in a case in point, Duncan, they seem to be taking an awful long time to make signings despite the fact that you know the, everything that we have heard everything uh, you and I have been hearing in terms of football circles uh, was that the, the club were prepared to invest heavily in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this summer and to make the team competitive is, there, uh, is this just ineptitude or is it because we're waiting for the prices to go down um, in the case of Nicola Pepe it seems the price is only going to go up well, they've, they've spent heavily um, on the players that they've they've signed so far, um, you know Daniel James was not cheap, but the price they paid for a, a young player who had, has no Premier League experience, Aaron Wan Bissaka, most expensive uh, specialist fullback um, in the history of the game by transfer fee, with a, a fee that rises to to fifty five million from Crystal Palace. So it's not um, when they have made. Uh, and completed deals, they put a lot of money on the table to do so. Um, Harry Maguire, uh, again, uh, uh, substantial offers to Leicester to do that deal. Um, the uh, the player wants to come to Manchester United. Uh, as we reported, Brendan Rodgers is open to selling uh, the player, but wants his replacement in first. So that's not going to be a cheap deal. Um at the point at which Manchester United uh, get it over the line. Um, I think you can see from Solskjaer's own words that uh, that he's now dependent on players going out. Um, His own account is if two or three players go out, then they can have as many as two or three further players coming in. Um, And that makes sense because you're, um, you're talking, I think with Pepe, you're talking about Pepe as a indirect replacement for Romelu Lukaku in that um, Solskjaer is changing the attacking setup um, and it looks like instead of going for a like-for-like replacement for Lukaku, he wants to put that um, the money he can raise from Inter and some of the salary because Pepe will be cheaper in salary terms than Lukaku into a player who can play off the right wing and be an, a, another um, another member of that attacking three with Rashford as the as the starting uh, number nine for him. Um, so there you have a, an element of waiting uh, to be sure that Lukaku is going out. And, and Inter have advanced their um, their offers for Lukaku, so that they they can see there's more money on the table at that end for for that player. Then you have Paul Pogba's situation. So obviously, if Paul Pogba goes, they need um, an important reinforcement in in central midfield. If they manage to retain him, Paul Pogba will be central to the team. So again, you can understand why um, that they can't. They can't necessarily go and buy a direct Paul Pogba expensive replacement um, without being sure that Pogba's going to leave. Um, so I, I think, I think it's, they're constrained to a certain extent because senior players in their squad um, are trying to exit and they have to uh, discover whether those, at what price 
the one that they're prepared to let go, Lukaku goes, and uh, whether they're forced into selling the one that they say they want to retain, uh, Paul Pogba. As you well know, Duncan, we're contacted by uh, regulars of the podcast from all over the world, our Manchester United fans. I think it's the lack of excitement in the transfer market for Manchester United so far. I think that's what's um, probably coming across most in terms of Man United fans. I think they're looking, they're hoping and looking for some kind of sign of a superstar player, a superstar attacker, uh, you know, someone who would really get them off their seats when it comes to going back to Old Trafford next season. And I suppose Nicola Pepe fits that bill. It will be very interesting to see if Solskjaer switches to four-three-three, uh, much more fluid. Uh, I'm told uh, that a third bid of 60 million euros from Inter for Romelu Lukaku has been placed. There are some reports that have been rejected, but that's not what I've been told. Inter are slightly more confident that they might be able to get uh, Lukaku for cheaper than the um, 80 million valuation that Manchester United have given them. Um, it's just going to be <clears throat> protracted, I think, because as you say, uh, Manchester United are waiting to see who's coming and who's going. Because, But in saying that, they're running out of time, Duncan, in terms of if players do leave, uh, how to get replacements in? Well, they've got till the 8th of August to complete the deals. Um, so that there's enough time uh, to get them in as yet. And, uh, you know, the, the, the framework of getting back in touch with, uh, with Leo for Pepe fits that timescale. Um, and it fits the, what you're telling us about Lukaku um, making progress uh, so you get the Lukaku deal um, to the point of completion and uh, and then you uh, you trigger um, what you've got set up with Pepe, assuming, and that this is the problem that they do have, uh, assuming you can convince the player to come and assuming you can uh, can beat the offers from other clubs. But, you know, it's, it's difficult in these days when players have so much, when transfer fees are so high um, and when salaries are so high, um, the the ability to just say okay we're going to um, we're going to buy these four players um, because they they fit our plan uh, and we're going to sell the four um, we don't want anymore uh, once we've bought uh, those four and get the prices we want from it's not it's not, that's not a simple process because other clubs say well okay we we can see that you uh, you have to shift Lukaku now so um, we're not going any higher on our bid and you're going to have to accept the money we we offer to you. And of course, the other difficulty, Duncan, is that if a player has offers from different countries, uh, the contracts will be very different because the tax laws will be different, because the image rights payments, which they will be entitled to, will be different, because the contractual payments regarding um, loyalty bonuses for years of contract completed, signing on fees, etc., etc., and the players' representatives, I mean, that sounds like a very hard task, isn't it? How many millions am I, is my player going to make in different countries? But the fact of the matter is that it's not just the sort of, you don't get one standard contract which is being offered to the player from each different club. So again, that does complicate the completion of these deals. Indeed, and you know, a great example is Italy. So uh, some of uh, Pepe's suitors are coming from Serie A. Uh, Syria has uh, now a, a massive tax, tax advantage in terms of signing uh, foreign footballers in that they only pay 21.5% um, tax uh, on, on their salary in Italy. Whereas if Pepe um, comes to Manchester United, uh, the majority of his basic salary will be taxed at 45%. Agents at this level of deal are uh, negotiate on net salary um, and they expect, therefore, the club to pick up 
that that tax cost. So effectively, um, Pepe and any other um, foreign player who's who Manchester United are competing for against the Serie A club is is relatively more expensive for Manchester United to hire and offer the same net salary as Napoli or another Italian club um, can offer him in Italy. And of course, Napoli have expressed an interest in Pepe, but they've also expressed an interest in Celtic left-back Kieran Tierney. Now, as we have been reporting on, uh, it seems like since uh, January almost, in terms of the interest in Tierney uh, from Everton, there's now obviously interest and bids from Arsenal. Um, they understand that Arsenal still have not made uh, the valuation that Celtic have of the player, which is £30 million. And indeed, the money that they have put, the money that they've suggested paid in instalments is not suitable to Celtic because they want to cash in on the player uh, rather than get the money in drips and drabs. Now, <clears throat> having spoken to contacts in Naples uh, over the weekend, I'm told that there is a firm interest in Tierney uh, from uh, Carlo Ancelotti's club. Um, Ancelotti himself has seen the player play, uh, likes him, uh, thinks that he would fit in well to his, his team and indeed into Serie A. However, they don't feel pressed to um, make an offer right now. They've informed Celtic of their interest and asked to be kept informed uh, of any impending deals so that they can act should they wish to. I suppose one of the problems uh, that Napoli will, might have is persuading Tierney himself to move to you know, a, you know, a different country, etc., etc., culture, language. Um, but things, I think, Duncan, I think the fact that Celtic are willing to sell sends the signal to Tierney uh, that, you know, it, his time at Celtic may, may be up. And therefore, who knows, maybe uh, the Amalfi Coast is a very beautiful place to be living. Um, so maybe if you took a little trip over there, you might fancy Napoli after all. What's, uh, what's your feeling and what, uh, what Tierney will do as the, as the Celtic supporter on this podcast? <laughs> um, I, I think it's very much up in the air. Uh, Clearly, uh, the, the lack of ability for Arsenal to complete the deal is frustrating uh, for Tierney because I think at one stage this summer, he, in his own head, he could see himself in an Arsenal kit because, as I said, Celtic are prepared to sell. That's effectively, you know, it's a, it's a softer way to treat Tierney that is the way Madrid have treated Gareth Bale. Uh, no one's publicly, you know, telling him he should go out, but they have bought a replacement left back now as well. That's obviously a big signal. Um, so I think. Tierney will leave, I do think that. Um, whether it's to Italy or Arsenal, I think depends purely on which club makes the best offer uh, and indeed not instalments in, in one fee. But really intriguing interview over the weekend, Duncan, with the former uh, technical, he wasn't technical director, was his friend missing at Arsenal? He was head of recruitment, is that correct? I think that was his formerly, yeah, he was head of recruitment. He was in, in charge of the, the scouting process that Arsenal brought in there. Um, season before last uh, as part of the, the overhaul of, of all uh, departments of the club that um, was instigated to prepare for Arsene Wenger's exit. Yeah, he of course left, is now working in Germany as a, a technical director at Stuttgart in the Bundesliga, um, gave an interview um, in Germany about uh, his new role and, 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 uh, and pretty much put the boot into um, the, the new regime um, at Arsenal um, said that he had uh, been told that he would become 
technical director at Arsenal this season. Um, but they decided to, um, when Raul Sanyehi um, took over as uh, essentially the footballing chief executive at Arsenal, they decided to go down a different route, eventually appointing former Arsenal player Edu uh, this summer. Um, and uh, and said that, uh, that instead of the kind of uh, super organised analytical system of um, of player recruitment that Mislintat um, had wanted to deploy at Arsenal and had planned to um, I think accelerate the use of when he became technical director, um, they were now as he puts it, the new leadership work more strongly with what they are offered from clubs or agents through their own networks. So essentially saying that um, Sanyehi and co um, aren't using analytics, aren't using um, careful scouting, but are, are, are using the approach of um, seeing what they're offered um, from agents they know or going to agents they know and asking them what they have available for a position and recruiting that way. So um, quite a a fascinating um, little uh, peek behind the, the curtain of the new Arsenal regime. It'll be interesting to see how Sanyei and co respond to that down the line. We should be clear as well, Duncan, this is like the football equivalent of, of people going back to vinyl records. Um, it's very, very retro. This is how football deals were done in the 80s and 90s. Uh, where agents would simply call up you know, the manager, usually. Sometimes it would have been the chief executive or the chairman of the club and say, oh, I've got a prayer for you, mate, <laughs> type thing. Maybe if they were Cottons or you know, Welsh or whatever. Um, but effectively, that's what this suggests. Now, given that every Premier League club, even the ones in the bottom half of the table, have invested millions of pounds in um, software which has been specifically designed for their club, so the, the algorithms which are created by the Boffins take into account all of the club's stats, say, for the past 10 years, all of the players they've had, the managers they've had, the formations they play, the fitness levels, et cetera, et cetera. And then they turn it into how they can improve the team in the future. Now, Arsenal absolutely have this kind of software available and no doubt a team of data analysis who then take the information and decide which players will fit better into the positions where they're looking to recruit. So for Arsenal to effectively be going back right, retrograde and saying, right, OK, let's depend on our contacts instead, I just don't see any sense in it. It just doesn't make any sense in modern football when you have these things at your disposal. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a strong believer in scouting in person and also in, in if you're going to sign a player... If I were a coach, I would always want to meet the player, his family, his agents. I want to look that player in the eye and make sure that he's going to play for me and that <clears throat> I'm not the one who's going to end up get, being sacked for signing him for £60 million or whatever. But, you know, I saw an interview with Edu and even his phraseology was, was quite kind of very oversimplified. He's, he was asked about, um, now this was, uh, I should say, was with the club's TV channel. So um, it, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't the, you know, the Spanish Inquisition in, in that sense. But he was being asked about, what, well, what's the hold up? Why, why we're not signing players? And his response was, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Um, in the modern game, you need more from a player than just uh, to know his technical ability. Uh, he needs to do everything right outside the pitch. We need to know what a player does um, before training. He has to work really hard it's not enough just to have talent. Now, that seems fairly, I think every football fan would probably say the same thing. So for a technical director of a Premier League club like Arsenal to be saying effectively what 
every Arsenal fan saying anyway, again, just seems odd. Yeah, well, Mifflin Tat's account is, is that well, Arsenal actually owns their own data company. That meant that we acted independently. We knew about all markets and players and all positions that, that came into question. And then saying the, the new leadership um, want to use their own networks instead. Look, you're going to get these um, power disputes and, and that's essentially what it is. Mislintat um, thought he was becoming technical director, expected to have even greater control over the recruitment at Arsenal. Um, he lost that power uh, and Sanyehi has brought in uh, Edu, who um, has been the technical director for Brazil. Um, and in te- he's an intelligent man, Edu, and a very uh, focused professional. I, I, I um, knew him as a player and he came across that way um, in his playing career. It doesn't surprise me he's ed- ended up uh, in this kind of role. Um, the test, of course, will be in the recruitment. And I can, again, I can understand why Edu is having to say um, there are issues with getting the right players in um, and uh, explain why Arsenal um, aren't able, haven't been able to do as much in the market as uh, their supporters would have liked them to. And I think as as the, everyone in the club would have liked them to. Um, essentially, he's, he's had, they, he and Sanye are having to come up with reasons. Um, they're not buying uh, as, much, as many players and as high-quality players as, as people would like, um, when the ultimate reason is they don't have the money available to them because of the owners. The owners will, have put a limit on the budget and they're trying to stretch that budget across multiple positions. Um, the squad isn't in good shape um, and hasn't been in good shape for a while. And uh, and some of the players um, who have been failed signings were ones that Mislin Tat was involved in. Some who have been successful signings, such as Aubameyang, Lucas Torreira, were also um, signings that Mislin Tat uh, was involved in. So there's, you know, there's there's two sides to this. Um, we will never find out um, whether Mislin Tat. Will, uh, would have done a better job as technical director uh, than uh, the Sanyehi Edu regime are going to do. The test will be um, what they can make out of this market um, and the limited resources they have and, wh- and whether they can strengthen the team in a, in a successful way. And, you know, Kieran Tierney is a big case in point because they've clearly identified Tierney as, um, as a good signing, an intelligent signing, an area in which they need to reinforce. And, and um, I don't think that many people in European football would argue that Tierney is um, one of the most talented left-backs around, has proven himself on the Champions League stage. The price is not excessive by current Premier League standards. The salary won't be excessive by current Premier League standards. So that they are. That there's a lot of, uh, of rationality to that move. Whether they can get it over the line or not is dependent on financial resource, and that's something that's out of their control. Um, so, in a sense, you know, it's clear Mislintat has put the boot into people who he feels have um, have uh, have not supported him and undermined him at the, at the club he was working at. It's an easy time to put the boot into Arsenal, really, because they are they're hamstrung in many ways in this transfer market. Well, I suppose we should 
take one different point of view, I suppose not the one that Arsenal fans would, would like too much, but is it the case that Arsenal are trying to, um, you know, basically cut cut the cloth according to what they what they can believe they can afford to spend, but unfortunately doing in a market which is more inflated than it's ever been. I mean, it's it's kind of slight. We say it's a slightly odd way to behave, but in actual fact, it, you know, in all normal businesses, you don't constantly spend your entire income every single year, which is what most Premier League clubs do in terms of the broadcast money. So the you know that's why the inflation in the market, that's why the inflation in wages. But football as a business, as one chief executive of an accountancy uh, company uh, once said to me, there is no other uh, business like football in terms of you know the way that they, they spend, they overspend, they don't invest. Any business which has the revenue of a football club, which doesn't have a huge amount of money, cash, liquid, uh, liquidity in the bank, uh, is running on the wrong model. So maybe Arsenal are trying to find somewhere in between. Just look at it. Take, compare Arsenal to the clubs they have to compete with. They have to get back in the Champions League. Their aim is to compete to win the Champions League and the Premier League. They admit that they're a long way off that and the first step is to get back into the Champions League. To get back into the Champions League, they've got to be better than at least two of Manchester City. Not going to happen. Liverpool, not going to happen. Chelsea, Manchester United and Tottenham. Uh, Tottenham's wage bill is a fraction of, of uh, Arsenal's and their revenues are getting very close to where Arsenal are. Um, they've got a, a much better squad than Arsenal's uh, at present and, uh, and they're spending the money in the right areas of the team. Um, Chelsea, Possibly they can get past them, but you'd you'd have to say Chelsea have a better squad of players and they also have a much deeper pool of players to work from, which we're seeing this summer in that they're they're choosing which of their loan group of uh, players and and, and who they want to promote from the academy to put into the first team. Um, Manchester United have got hugely greater financial resources. Their squad's not great, but they, they can afford, if they want a player, for 80 million, they can afford to go out and get that player for 80 million. Arsenal can't do that. Um, and Manchester City and, and Liverpool are just on a different plane altogether. So if, you, if you're faced with that problem, you're going to have to come up with something very intelligent and creative strategically to solve it. And we, we talked uh, in the podcast last week about one of the, you know, the, the plans they have in place, which is to find um, a backup right back, a young backup right back to Hector Bellerin um, this summer. You can come in and uh, and share the position to a certain extent with Bellerin while he recovers from um, the injury that, that left him out for most of last season. They expect Bellerin to have a really good season, re-establish himself as, as one of the top talents in that position and hope to sell him for substantial money down the line. So that that's... That's a, an intelligent plan if you're trying to make the most of the resources you have, which, which is um, push the value up of a player who you know you can sell, um, try and get a big transfer fee for him, buy someone in at a cheaper price, have him ready to, to replace in a year's time, and then you take the money, you've, the profit you've made on that and reinvest it in another area of the team. But that, that's and unless the Cronkies change their mind and say, we will give you... Um, a, a substantial amount of money and let you run at a loss as far as we can within um, UEFA financial fair play rules um, for three seasons. 
and put that money into into the squad to try and get us back in the Champions League, which they aren't, which they aren't doing, which they haven't done. They don't have any other solution but to try and be intelligent and clever in the market. And um, the analytics line, I'd be surprised if, if uh, Arsenal have completely dumped their analytics department, which is kind of the suggestion Miss Lantat's making. Um, and you can go down analytics as much as you like and you can identify the players um, who fit for a certain position by their statistical output. But as you say, Ian, every other club has got access to that data these days. So when they look for you know, a, a left-sighted forward who can score goals and create goals, the same uh, pool of five players will come up as, as options um, in everyone's data system. Then it comes down to a battle of who can convince the player to come. And most of that's down to finances. And Arsenal aren't going to win the financial battle with most of their competitors for the reasons we've just explained. So perhaps you do have to um, use other routes and, and work with the contacts you can you trust and can convince you uh, convince players to come to clubs and, and help you out. It's, um, it, it might be old school, um, but element, there's a reason why that old school approach was there. And if you, if you run the checks and, and uh, you're offered a player who wants to come, you run the checks, numbers look good on them, you can, and you can actually get them into the club through your network, then at least you've got the player into the club, um, which is better than, than having a player you want to come and not being able to secure them because you don't have the money to do it. Oh, no, it's definitely a case, Duncan, that... Um Clubs are some clubs are over reliant on data analysis, which leads to a sort of depersonalization of the whole transfer dynamic, which I think does put some players off because football players, you know, they're by and large they're fairly kind of um, straightforward in their um, your daily routines, etc. All they want to know really is will I play and how much money am I going to be paid? Um, that's really what a football asks for. Um, it's not a case of uh, the, the tail wagging the dog or, or whatever, because what what we would do normally is if you want, as you said, the left-sided attacking player, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then you do your statistical analysis first, then you make a decision which player is most suited to your team, and then you go speak to his dad and his agent and the player himself. And yeah, you've got to schmooze them. You've got to make, make sure they feel loved and wanted and well-paid um, if you're going to have a chance of signing them. So it's... It, it's, I think it's a mention of two which works best, but I, I know what you mean about old school being good for a reason. And, you know, when Cristiano Ronaldo signed for Manchester United, uh, there was no data analysis done. I mean, he just played a really good friendly game against him for Sporting Lisbon. And Sir Alex Ferguson went to the player and said, do you want to come to Manchester United? That's one other thing which I think gets lost in this, in this data argument. What, what, what data tells you is how a player is performing at the moment. Um, and it's dependent on, there's a lot of shortcomings to it in terms of how you actually measure um, complex behaviour inside a football team through uh, statistical methods. It, it's good, it's effective, but it's not perfect. But fundamentally, uh, talking to the guys who are very good at, at, at recruiting uh, players, identifying players and recruiting players in European football, the thing that data misses is what a player is going to become. And that's where you can make the real successes in a recruitment team as you spot the player who's going to become excellent in a year or two years' time. And his data won't be great because he hasn't reached that level yet. But two years down the line, his data will be fantastic. So if you're dependent purely on 
a, an analytics model and you've got that, that thing that says you, he's got to get past these criteria or we're not going to sign him, then you will miss the future talents because they won't have the data yet. Um, and I guess that's where a club like Arsenal uh, have to also focus part of the resource and try and find um, the people who can identify the future talents and get them before the other clubs do. Indeed, I mean, that's the role of the old-fashioned scout. The guy who drives, you know, 1,000 miles a week to different games, under 23s, under 19s, looking at players and then sporting the talent early and saying to, you know, his bosses, look, you should have a serious look at this guy because I think he may be something special. Um, unfortunately, you know, I guess, again, the stats tell us that Chelsea buy players from all around the world and put 37 players out on loan and very few of them actually make the first team. So, um, again, as you said, Duncan, if you could create a data, a data analysis system for measuring what a player might become, then maybe you've got yourself a, a sort of a Microsoft moment for football. <laughs> so, um, from one North London club who don't are trying to do intelligent deals to another North London club who do do intelligent deals and... Uh, just about to talk about Watford, I'd like just to say if you missed our exclusive interview with Ben Foster on last Friday's pod, please look it up uh, and uh, have a listen because it was an extremely interesting insight into what it's like in pre-season as well as a career which has spanned almost 20 years in, uh, in Ben's case. Uh, some very um, great anecdotes and funny moments in that. But Duncan, tell us about a new player at Watford that they, they are on the verge of signing, we believe. Is that correct? I think on the verge of signings too much, but he's. Uh, if you listen to that podcast, we also talked to Kevin Affleck, who's on uh, um, pre-season with Watford, and he was mentioning that the, the need to and the desire to add a bit of stardust um, to Watford's attacking line, and this is one of the players they've identified as being that um, stardust that they could they could bring in. It's Ishmael Assar um, forward at uh, Stade Rom. Um, who in some ways he's, a, he's kind of a, a younger version of, of Nicola Pepe uh, 21 plays predominantly off the right wing but can play all the way across the attack um, quick uh, scored against Arsenal uh, last season in Europa League he had um, 8 goals and 7 assists in, in Ligue 1 um, last season for Rong um, Watford have prioritised him as the, the attacking addition and uh, are now trying to get him out of uh, Ron this summer to bring and add to their squad. Um, I think with Watford, it's always a case that they have a very defined price that they will go to um, and they won't overpay for players um, because their the transfer market is kind of essential to the Pozzo family um, and to the strategy of keeping them in the Premier League and, and making a financial profit from the club um, I think this is uh, given the context of what we've been talking about it's, it's a clever spot by Watford he's a player who's been mentioned to me um, by um, top scouts as, as a serious talent for some time now um, if they can get him in and give him a platform to play uh, he, look, he looks the player who could who could deliver on the Premier League for them immediately and certainly uh, be a, a profitable um, sell down the line and develop into one of those top um, players um, in the future. So very much 
fit in with Watford's transfer strategy. Um, and we'll see if they if they can manage to complete that one before the, the start of the Premier League season. Well, as ever, it's been a veritable feast of transfer news and analysis here on the Transfer Window podcast. It's Monday, so it's time for Heroes and Villains. Duncan, I think, is going to take a new twist on this one because he does like to do things differently. Duncan, who is your hero for this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make, I mean, I'm an anti-hero this week. Um, and I, I think my anti-hero has to be Jonathan Barnett um, for his his doggedness in his defence of, of Gareth Bale. Um, uh, for calling Zinedine Zidane a disgrace, um, for speaking about his his client uh, in the fashion he did over the weekend, saying that uh, um, he would he hoped he, he left the club soon, um, and, and insisting if and when Gareth goes, it will be because it is in the best interest of Gareth and nothing to do with Zidane pushing. Um, he has he has had a, a sterling defence of Gareth Bale over the last few years. Um, he always insists that um, Madrid have underrated him and, and uh, kind of likes to portray Bale as the, as the, one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason, why um, Madrid have won four Champions Leagues in recent seasons and, uh, and, and that they, they desperately undervalue his client. And uh, I think I've got to applaud um, the, the fashion in which he's done that against him. Um, a fair weight of evidence that, that Bale really isn't delivering in the fashion that he should be doing given his talent and given the money that uh, Madrid have paid him during his six years in Spain. I suspect when it comes to valuing footballers or indeed judging their value for the team, Zinedine Zidane may well go for the old shows your medals, Jonathan, uh, in this particular instance. So <laughs> you've now done an anti-hero, which means I've got to do an anti-villain because, you know, it's, that's the way we roll on the transfer window. And I'm going to choose the man who no one can comprehend his genius, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, making headlines in the MLS again last weekend, scoring the perfect hat-trick, right foot, left foot, head. Um, and of course, in Zlatan world, that's just what Zlatan does. He can do it in his sleep, he can do it uh, when he's, you know, probably having a wee as well. Who knows? But Zlatan certainly would tell you he could do that. But um, perfect hat-trick. Uh, they don't come along that often, except in Zlatan's world. So well done, Zlatan. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll be doing something more spectacular next week as well. We will be doing more spectacular things this week because we'll be back on Wednesday for with a new Transfer Window podcast for you all. If you've enjoyed this, and we know you do, please give something back and go on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and you know what comes next. We expand the community even more. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Transfer Podcast or at Duncan Castles for the football soothsayer at Garbo SJ for me. We'll see you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Thanks for listening and goodbye.